0: Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, I'm Tom Keen with David Gurra. Daily we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Future's flat, Dow futures up nine. Equity's churning, but look at the Dow, 21,528. And you weren't in a market because the market, the economy was terrible. Things are terrible. On Friday, you read four doom and gloom articles to get you through the terrible weekend to get to the terrible Monday where, Drew Mattis, the stock market goes up again. Because in your wonderful days at UBS with Maury Harris, you were right then, you're right now. It's a resilient American economy. Can you link your GDP optimism right over to the stock market?
1: Uh, No, but I think it's reflecting it. I mean, I think when you look at the world today, you see a moderate growth environment with moderate inflation, very low interest rates, uh, and very low volatility in the economy itself. And so, you know, when you look at the equity market, for example… You know, there's less volatility around everything, so you know that's why the multiple I think keeps going up is because people are like, well, you know, I'm not going to get six percent in terms of nominal growth. Uh, I'm going to get four, but I know it's a solid four as opposed to six percent plus or minus four.
0: Let's let's go back to original Drew Mattis before we get to the markets uh, here, and that is the idea of justifying 2.8 or three percent GDP. Is it a consumer we misjudge? Do we get an investment buoyancy or does trade light up a, a, like a candle because of dollar dynamics? What's going to be the, the, the partial differential that makes that happen?
1: Well, so I think the consumer is going to have a lot to do with it. Uh, and I think we're going to see that investment cycle begin because I think the thing that's being misjudged and misunderstood the most uh, and that everyone is getting wrong is that productivity, productivity is cyclically low. This is not a structural story. This is a cyclical story, and it's been persistent because of the low-rate environment we've been in.
0: This is a really important comment, folks. Let's dive deeper into this, and this goes back to Oh, any number of Nobel laureates and frankly, people that are are truly acclaimed thinking about efficiency of capital, efficiency of labor in this technological overlay. Everybody focuses on technology. It's structural. The world's going to come to an end. You're saying, yeah, that's there, but no, it's about a cyclical. Did Janet Yellen force low productivity because she kept rates low?
1: I wouldn't say she forced it. But if you think about what low rates have done, low rates have effectively allowed companies that perhaps should have gone out of business to stay in business. Uh, and so every year that goes by where that occurs and you have companies that should be getting churned uh, because their their cost of financing what they're trying to do. Um, oh, come on. Getting, they're getting a free lunch. Well, they're staying in business. And what that's doing is is it's taking a percentage of the U.S. workforce, a growing percentage of the U.S. workforce, and keeping them at firms that are not productive. They're not being churned out. Uh, and so we're not getting the turnover in the labor market that puts people to their most efficient use and best use. Uh, so it's not good for the employees. It hurts their wages, actually, because uh, low-productivity firms can't afford to pay better. Um, but they can, if they're staying in business... Uh, a greater and greater percentage of the US, U.S. workforce is working at these firms that are not productive. Uh, and then we wonder why U.S. productivity okay. is low.
0: But th- then to review this, these are really important comments, folks, whether you agree or not with Mr. Madison, and Matt Life. The first order condition for the Fed is to provide financial stability. They lowered rates. to saved the banks. Except we all know the story. The second order condition are these knock-on effects of the first order condition. What's the lead knock-on effect right now? Of Bill Gross's financial repression or the idea of looking at a, a negative two-year yield since time – a real two-year yield since time began, what's the key second-order effect?
1: Uh, a, a, a very low level of economic volatility, which is bad for the economy. We need – as a country, the U.S. has always thrived in creative destruction. <laughs> uh, and without creative destruction, uh, we do not get to our efficient operating level. And there's another reason why perhaps productivity might be too low, uh, which is that we are not operating at the right. Uh, if you think of the U.S. economy as an engine, we're, we don't have the RPMs up high enough.
0: Within, within, within the RPMs of the U.S. economy, how many rate rises changes the oil in the tank? So maybe we've got a Velvoline moment. Is this, can we? Does Velvoline sponsor us under the under the star under the Texaco sign? Something like that. Uh, but 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 the. That was a Midwest moment, folks. Excuse me there. But the basic idea, we got to get the oil in the engine. How many rate increases does it take to get the oil in the engine? Uh,
1: I I think you have to get to a more normal level. I also think the balance sheet has something to do with it. So I don't have the answer for that because I think it's a mix of the two. But I do think the Fed is moving in the right direction, which is towards higher Fed funds rates, towards normalizing the balance sheet. Uh, and I would say that you know one of the things that concerns me is this idea that the balance sheet is going to remain excessively enlarged uh, for an extraordinary period of time and that we don't have to return to kind of a more historically normal-sized balance sheet. Uh, I think <clears throat> in the end, the Fed will have to retreat from that and move back towards a more normal balance sheet, which is somewhere in the order of 6 to 7% nominal. How sheet. long is
0: it going to take? Because when I spoke with uh, President uh, Kaplan of the Dallas Fed, he kept moving his hand. For those of you who can see this on radio, I'm moving my hand down. And he was moving it out years. I mean, he was on the edge of decades. Are you suggesting this is all going to happen a lot quicker?
1: Uh, I think it's going to take a decade on the balance sheet uh, and uh, on interest rates. Uh, I'm not sure we'll have a decade before the next uh, before the next downturn, but I do think we've got a few years. And I think by the yeah. time we get there, uh, we will have rates in a more reasonable uh, place.
0: What, what does what does the low? I want to do the MetLife angle, the institutional angle here in our next section. But in this section, what does this world we're in that we've created do? for investors and savers. I mean, forget about somebody who wants to buy 6,000 shares of Amazon to make a quick hit off Whole Foods. To mom and pop out there, what does this environment mean?
1: Well, for people who are approaching retirement, they're saving more. Uh, And so this is something that we've looked at a lot. If you look at 10-year yields versus savings rates, the relationship is not linear, uh, meaning that below a certain interest rate, people save more, and above a certain interest rate, people save more. When it's above it, they're saving because they think the economy is going to go into a recession. There's this fear out there. Below a certain interest rate, the fear is that they're not going to be able to have enough for retirement to actually meet their, their income needs in retirement, so they save more. So in order to kind of get people to save less and to boost economic spending in the economy, you actually need to move <clears throat> rates up.
0: Well, maybe that's a paradox and a paradox to take it back to Econ 101. It's a lot but of ducks. A, a, it's a lot of ducks. But how how many rate increases are we to normal within this really interesting general discussion?
1: Uh, I mean, I think... I would say three. I think you would be on the verge of normal with another three or so. Yes. You know, historically, the Fed saw anything below one as abnormal. Uh, And then obviously the crisis happened. They went to zero... Um, I think once you're above one, you're in a better spot. Uh, you know, Something on the closer to three in my mind is right. is better than two, uh, but I'll <clears> take two in, okay. in a pinch.
0: You know, what's great about Drew Mattis, folks, he brings the entire entourage from MetLife with him, including the general counsel. He's going to need his general counsel in the next section as we talk about uh, insurance portfolios and actuarial assumptions, something I know he spends a lot of time on as well. We'll get a little geeky there for Global uh, Wall Street. So we're with Drew Mattis. Of MetLife. Drew, insurance companies of all flavors, including as venerable as the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, have to worry about meeting the actuarial assumption. That has been challenging since this financial crisis began. Is there light at the end of the the actuarial tunnel?
1: Well, I mean, you know, with, you know, we we haven't had rates move up the the way we would have liked. My forecast for the end of year, 10 year, is 275. Uh, I still think we can get there. Uh, You know, if you look at it from a kind of a monthly move perspective, you're looking at eight basis points a month, which is not uh, unreasonable, particularly given some of the moves we've seen around some of the bigger events. Uh, but yes, it's challenging, and that's why we have a—you know—we have a very solid um, team. We have hundreds of people at MetLife Investment Management working uh, to kind of, um, you know, hit our hit our targets. Uh, and we have a lot of expertise in areas that, that kind of enable us to invest in places, that, you know, that, that can help us as well. So, um, you know, I, you know, higher rates would be helpful, uh, but you know, we can we can get through without them.
0: Are bonds and stocks correlated right now?
1: Uh, you know, um, yes, but I, I think, you know, fundamentals are actually now beginning to be the driver. So one of the things we've created is, is a proprietary index of um, of uh, fundamental activity. And what we see is that fundamentals now are driving things, not kind of the shock uh, factors anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we watch this index that we've created to, to give us a sense of whether that's beginning to move or not. Uh, and right now, at least, uh Our fundamental index is telling us that fundamentals are driving things, and then we have actually underlying fundamental indices for uh, credit, real estate, uh, the consumer, and all of those are suggesting pretty much a Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold environment. Well, I like the
0: Goldilocks idea. Is there Goldilocks in the oil patch? I mean, we've got 43.33 down 87%. Bob Moon saying it's a 2% uh, move. We had to readjust from 100 down to 40 at one point. I would suggest we cleared most of the market, right?
1: Uh, you know, I, I think so. I think you know the you know the, the key really for me when when we think about oil uh, in, in the context of the U.S. at least is that um, you know, w- because the U.S. has become this kind of swing producer, w- whatever we thought the peak oil price was that you could get to maybe ten or fifteen years ago, that number's got to be lower. And so when you look at the average price that you can expect over the next ten years. It's something divided by two, right? And so, uh, it's you know, it's lower than it would have been if you asked the same question uh, fifteen or twenty years ago. And for me, that's the key feature uh, of kind of the U.S. oil revolution.
0: Drew Mattis, thank you so much with MetLife, their chief market strategist. So the real, it's a huge responsibility, folks, to try to gauge equities, bonds, currencies, commodities and economics across the liabilities of any given insurance company. What's short-term at life? Five years?
1: Uh, we we have a very long-run perspective oh, okay, on the Come world.
0: on, give me an answer. What short-term? Ten years?
1: You're trying to
2: get them fired?
0: Yeah, well, well, no, we're not. The general counsel's hanging on every syllable. <laughs> five years. I mean, seriously, five years is short-term for an insurance company. We, we make
1: investments. We are a liability-driven investor, and that means we make investments for the long term.
0: There he is with the CYA answer. Drew Mattis of MetLife, thank you so much. Worldwide, this is Bloomberg. Right now... With us, William Priest, for a brief time as we await a conversation with the Secretary of Treasury, William Priest wrote an iconic book. It was instantly classic and has stayed that. That's hard to do on shareholder yield a number of years ago. This would be the measurement of cash flow, which would we see more of in the next five or 10 years, dividend growth or share buybacks, which has the high ground now in terms of use of cash?
2: Well, I think what's going to happen is, first of all, you have to take one step back and say, should I reinvest or should I return capital? What's critical to that is can you earn a premium over your cost of capital? If you can indeed reinvest at a premium over your cost of capital, you should reinvest or acquire. But for many companies, particularly large ones, that's almost <coughs> impossible. So they will return much of that cash to the owners of the business, and they will do that either through cash buybacks or debt pay down. From a tax standpoint, buybacks are favored. Wall Street doesn't always treat buybacks with the same valuation. Should they? Uh, It depends on the reason. If the reason for the buyback is to get management paid because earnings per share are higher and they get a bonus, that's a misuse of cash flow. But in theory, they are identical.
0: So, and if you don't want to talk about this, Bill, we know each other so well that that if you want to step aside on this, IBM – is financial engineering. They basically did William Priest 101 in the first four pages of their annual report for years and years and years and years, and then the shell game broke. Did you own IBM as they were financially engineering yeah. their way to oblivion?
2: We have been negative on IBM for years. They Why? haven't had an up quarter. Why have you been had negative? No revenue growth. No revenue growth from umptium quarters. Uh, there are too many games you can play with accounting. And many, many years ago, it was uh, uh, when Lou Ruckheiser's show was on. Lou asked me a question because I'm a, I'm a CPA. My background includes that at one point I, I was an accountant.
0: We won't and, hold that against you.
2: Well, he asked me a question. He, it was one of the great straight lines I was ever given. Uh, and he said, Bill, being an accountant and being a CPA, is it helpful in being a security analyst or a portfolio management? Yeah. And I basically said, well, Lou, you know, accounting is a lot like a bathing suit. What it reveals is interesting, but what it conceals is vital. And I think accounting is a way to obfuscate truth. And it's gotten worse and worse as you've gone through yeah. uh, time.
0: These censors just gagged me here at surveillance, so I can't respond okay. okay, to that. Mr. Rukeyser could respond to that. And in the modern day, even Lou Rukeyser couldn't respond to the bathing suit priest analogy. Am I doing okay, John?
3: Yeah, you <clears throat> Dig that hole real deep. <laughs> Get there. the shovel out. Keep going, keep we'll dig going. the hole ever
0: deeper. Okay, <laughs> yeah. but IBM seriously here. You look at the IBM pages, everybody thinks it's CPA, C F A. 101, and you're saying, the revenue growth isn't there. Amazon has more revenue growth than God. Mm-hmm. Is Mr. Bezos, did he read William Priest? I have no idea. Why not? Why can't you Bezos. look at Why can't you? You should have, well, <laughs> yeah. well uh, who do we have on yesterday uh, that, that was wonderful about this? Uh, uh, David Rubenstein saying he made the same mistake you made and the, you know, the underestimated Bezos. You got revenue growth at Amazon. Does that count towards shareholder yield?
2: I think at the end of the day... You you're going to look at, does the entity generate uh, cash flow? All businesses are driven ultimately by their ability to generate cash flow. Now, we have a definition for free cash flow, which essentially indicates that the the definition that we use, it's the cash available for distribution to shareholders <coughs> after all planned uh, capital right. expenditures and all cash taxes. So. What Bezos has done is essentially say, you know what, I can reinvest my capital at a higher than my cost of capital, which has been true in this era we've been in, where the cost of capital is falling year after year after
0: year. So this is the money question, folks. This is critically uh, important as well. This is so important. He's got a game going. And like Brian Roberts at Comcast, someday you shift. Comcast brilliantly shifted from capex development over to use of cash to shareholders to great advantage. Do you believe Jeff Bezos can shift from revenue, high-return new businesses to a more mature business x number of years down the road?
2: I the jury's out, but I would say he probably can. But right now, he just looks at he is the major disruptor in business today. You don't want to be on the other side of what he's doing. It's too disruptive.
0: Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of dot com slash V-R. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner and Smith Incorporated.
4: Welcome to our viewers around the world, our listeners on Bloomberg Radio as well. I'm joined by the 77th Secretary of the Treasury, Stephen Mnuchin, here uh, at uh, the Gaylord Resort uh, south of Washington, D.C. Thank you very much uh, for being here. Thank you. You've become familiar with the idiosyncrasies of this town, uh, the strange customs. You're about to become familiar with another. That is the semi-regular debate uh, about the debt limit. When are we going to to hit it? How, How soon is that debate going to happen? Well, let me just say, we're already having the discussion
3: on it, and and I don't think it's a debate. Let me be clear. I think everybody realizes we need to raise the debt ceiling. The government debt is the most important credit in the world, and we're the reserve currency. So this is just a little bit of a process. That's the government process of how we go about. And one of the things I think we should think about over time is changing this process. It should be once we've spent the money that the debt limit goes along
4: with the commitment to spend. Is it the beginning of September when you think we we hit that limit? Is it later in the month? Do you have a specific date at this point?
3: We constantly review these numbers internally. Um, I don't want to give exact projections, as I've said. I've encouraged Congress to act before they leave for the summer, but uh, we do have enough money to get us through September in case they don't.
4: Back in January, before you were confirmed, you spoke against prioritization of debt payments. Now that you've been on the job, you're familiar with the office and the way things work here uh, in Washington. Uh, Do you still feel that way? Are you against prioritization?
3: Let me just say, I think that the Congress should raise the debt ceiling so that we don't have to talk about prioritization. That's really the focus. We should be paying our bills when they're due, and we shouldn't put the government at risk.
4: There hasn't been what I would call a chorus of consensus around this issue and a few others within the administration. There were some of your colleagues who are calling for a clean raise of the debt limit. There are others who think it should be tethered to, to spending cuts. What's it going to take to get to unanimity on this issue and others within the, within the administration? Well, I, I think we have a general understanding within the
3: administration, and, and we're clear on that. And we're working with Congress. This is really up to Congress to
4: raise the debt limit. And, and again, it's something I'm confident that they'll do before we get to a point that's critical. On the issue of unanimity, is the White House saying there is a date by which we will have a tax reform proposal from the White House? Are you speaking with one voice on that issue? Well, I think we've been pretty consistent in saying we're working every week very
3: closely with the House and the Senate to have a joint plan when we come out. And the idea is to get us all on the same page, so when we release the combined plan, it's going to get passed. And it's going to get passed by the House and the Senate, and the president will sign it. And it's our focus to get that done this year. It's critical to the economy, and we're
4: working every day to get that done. What's your relationship like with lawmakers on Capitol Hill? How have you found that, being new to Washington, being new to this job?
3: I think we have very good relationships. And uh, I think it's a team effort. I think the good news is we understand what we want to do we want to get growth in this country we want to have tax reform it hasn't been done in 30 years it's critical we want to simplify personal taxes we want to create a middle-income tax cut and we want to make business taxes competitive we have one of the highest tax rates in the world with worldwide taxes and deferral which leads to trillions of dollars
4: left offshore you bring up growth uh, I must say that's the theme of this conference. I talk to maybe a half dozen economists every day, and almost without exception, they disagree with the projections that you have that we can attain 3 or 4% of growth in the near to, to medium term. What are you seeing that they're not? Well, again, I just want to put this in perspective. When Obama came into office, he was
3: projecting over 4% economic growth. We obviously haven't had that. We've had one of the lowest growth rates in modern history. And we're just not going to be satisfied with 2% growth. We're going to work every day in this administration to do everything we possibly can To unlock the economic capital to create jobs to create better
4: wages and get growth above 3 percent we're committed to doing that you're here among and talking to foreign investors let me ask you about CFIUS you've said your decisions on foreign investment are based largely on national security that's the, the cornerstone would you be in favor of an economics benefits test for investment in the US well let me just say they're not largely on national security they're completely
3: on national security and No, I I, I favor CFIUS to be for national security. There's other things we can do to make sure that we are economically competitive. But the U.S. is one of the freest trading markets in the world. It's one of the freest investment markets in the world. We welcome foreign investors to invest here. And we just want to
4: make sure we get treated the same way abroad. That's really our focus. You've talked about a strong dollar and a dependable dollar. Uh, Not to get into the semantics here, but what's the difference between the two? How do you define a dependable dollar? Well, again, the dollar is the reserve
3: currency of the world um again it's not our focus where the dollar is in the short term there's obviously certain negative aspects of a strong dollar as it relates to our exports but on the other hand the a strong dollar is a vote of confidence in the u.s economy and the trump administration similarly to what's going on with the stock market so this is one of the most important economic investment opportunities the u.s. and we're seeing a lot of attractions here and that's a lot about what this conference is today
4: on the issue of investment a, a few months back you were talking to a colleague of mine out in l.a. at the milton conference and you suggested that uh, ultra-long bonds absolutely made uh, since. Do, do you still believe that? Or are you walking back from that uh, a little bit in light No, I'm, not I'm, I'm not. I'm not walking
3: back. Uh, again, it's something that we're very seriously considering. Um, I do think it's a tool that the government should strongly consider. And we're reaching out through the borrowing committee and investors to, to see what the demand is. I mean, what we don't want to do is create a program that's a completely one-off program. We want to see if it would be an important part of our
4: borrowing capabilities. Uh, In the past, people in your position have been advisors to the president on picking future chairs of the Federal uh, Reserve. Has the president solicited your advice on who the next Fed chair should be?
3: Well, on on all the financial regulatory positions, Gary Cohn and I are working. Very closely together in making recommendations to the president, so that he, he and I have have interviewed all the people and have made joint recommendations to the president.
4: What do you think constitutes a good Fed chair? In other words, broadly speaking, what are you? Or what do you think the president should be looking for in a in a Fed chair this next term? Well, let me just say we haven't made any decisions
3: yet on the Fed chair, um, whether we're going to have a new one or we're not going to have a new one, and
4: uh, we'll, we'll be working closely together with the president as we consider all the issues. Uh, what is your relationship like with uh, Mr. Cohn? We, we hear so much about the palace intrigue, uh, reports of division or discord within within the White House. Uh, what's your sense of how the economic team is working, how it's working together? I think the economic team couldn't be working better together, and that's a, a
3: combination of myself, Gary Cohn, Wilbur Ross, it's Bob Lightheiser on trade, it's Mick Mulvaney on the budget. Uh, we meet constantly, and uh, I think we couldn't be working together. As it relates to Gary and I, he and, he and I have known each other for a very long period of time and we uh, worked together very closely in the past.
4: Uh, Otto Warmbier has passed away, of course, a 22-year-old student who was in North Korea for more, more than a year. The president has passed along his condolences and said that he's reaffirming his uh, opposition to the policies of the North Korean regime. What more can you do? Uh, We've seen the Treasury Department deploy and implement sanctions against North Korea. Uh, As you react to this news and think about steps forward, are there more tools in the Treasury Department's toolkit when it comes to sanctions?
3: Well, let me first say it's it's a very unfortunate situation, and I also pass on my condolences to his family. Uh, He was treated very poorly, and nobody should be treated like that. And as we've said before, we are firmly committed at Treasury to use all our powers to put sanctions on North Korea and work with our allies to stop what they're doing, and that's the the missile testing, the nuclear testing. Um, This is something we're working very
4: closely with our allies on. I spoke with your predecessor about sanctions. It was something he was very interested in and worked hard to. raise. the the status of that as a policy tool, implementing sanctions in the the realm of national security. Do you see your sanctions policy as an extension of that? Uh, Are you doing anything differently than Secretary Liu was doing when it comes to sanctions?
3: Well, let me just comment, you know, sanctions have been around for a long period of time and specifically post 9-11, they they are a very important tool for policymakers. So we will continue to use sanctions to the maximum amount that we can. And uh, I constantly meet with Secretary Tillerson and Secretary Mattis. And at the
4: National Security Council, this is one of the tools we talk about and all of our foreign policy objectives. I don't know if you've opened your mail from yesterday, but a number of uh, congressmen, Republicans, Democrats wrote you about Rosneft potential investing or becoming a controlling investor of, of Citgo, given the, the status of that uh, company, raising concerns about what that might mean for sanctions, having a company with so much infrastructure uh, in the US under Russian uh, control. Are you concerned about that uh, as well? Well, uh, first of all, I do read my mail. Yes. <laughs> so I, I know it that. came late <laughs> yesterday. Yeah. Um, You know, I can't
3: comment on any specific cases in CFIUS, but uh, I I can assure them and I can assure others, I take my role as chair of CFIUS very seriously. We will use CFIUS solely for the purposes of protecting our national security,
4: and any transaction that's within our jurisdiction, we will look at very carefully. Just a last question here about uh, an op-ed that uh, Gary Cohn and H.R. McMaster wrote for The Wall Street Journal on uh, the arena. Seeing the world community as less of a community, as a place where countries are competing against another in that space what's what's the what's the role of uh, multilateral institutions oh i think there's a significant role
3: i mean I, I think there's a lot of common objectives that we have i think whether it's the world bank whether it's the imf or, or others there's definitely a role for us working with our allies with these institutions uh to, to, to create fixes for problems around the world i think as you know Kind of, We've been working with the Greeks on the, the debt crisis there. We're pleased that we've come to an agreement, or the Europeans have come to an agreement. And I worked closely with the IMF and with our partners. Although this is primarily a European issue, we wanted to make sure that this was done. And uh, we're very pleased with the IMF's role in those negotiations.
4: Secretary Mnuchin, thank you very much. Thank uh, you. That's Steve Mnuchin, the 77th Secretary of the Treasury. Back to you.
0: Great pleasure. Uh, great, great pleasure. This is truly one of the nation's leaders on trying to get your kids to learn their multiplication lab- uh, tables and actually get through trigonometry in high school. Here's what you need to know he was what was called a Westinghouse scholar. This is a few years ago, before Princeton, before this, before that. Everybody who was cool didn't want to do what you and I did, which is a lot of science and a lot of math. And you took the trophy in high school as a Westinghouse scholar. It's like the movie October Sky. It's a nerd on the block. How did you get through the social impact of math and science where everybody said what Tom Layton did, that's not cool?
5: Well, I just love math and science, so I had a lot of fun doing it. And uh, there were a few other kids at the time. There were. There were a
0: few others. But there was also that social tension of that's not cool. What Tom Layton of Akamai is doing, that's not cool.
5: Yeah, no, that's true, and we've, we face yeah. that same challenge today, I think, yeah, uh, I, in terms of what is emphasized, and uh, it is a challenge, I think, for the country.
0: Within this and within your public service, along with the, the success of Akamai and, and what you've done in the, the Internet, is the idea of the rigor of mathematics. How do we help kids get through the tough moments, the rigor, where you're looking at sine, cosine, tangent, and those, those other three functions on the other side? How do we get to the rigor?
5: You know, I think one key is to make math be interesting uh, and to show kids what it can be used to do. Uh, You know, take search. Uh, That's all math. And, you know, I think when you expose it to kids in the right way, show them the magic of math, the power of math, that goes right. a long way to increasing interest uh, later on.
0: Tom Layton, of course, is a co-founder of Akamai Technologies in the internet and in video and all. A lot of the nuts and bolts of how what we take for granted happens every day. I, I've got about eight themes to go with you, but I'm going to go right now to the M&A market of Silicon Valley, which is we extrapolate out valuations of tech upstarts. This didn't happen when Akamai was around. You didn't get much. Money come in and then they'd say it's a 42 billion dollar company and that's the vogue right now how did this begin to happen like with uber how do we extrapolate uber into an umpteen billion dollar company
5: well we actually akamai went through that uh you did know, you go through that we did get we for... started in 98 <laughs> and in 99 did one of the largest ipos ever and did get a yeah. Very high value. It got up to about thirty-five billion dollars. Come
0: on, it's a moonshot chart. Yeah, <laughs> it, like it a, is. A Saturn V launcher.
5: Yeah, and then of course reality does set in, and during the the bubble bursting, yeah. uh, had a tremendous crash. We lost um, you know seven hundred to one in value. Yeah, and uh, you know managed through a lot of hard work from very talented employees to survive that, and then grow into a very profitable. Uh, And fast-growing company today.
0: Yeah, the rate of return, folks, off the tobacco of 2001 of Ekamai is jaw-dropping and really speaks. It's pretty much a linear function of of double-digit excellence and shareholder return. I guess I got to go to the video question. I perceive video on the internet as a kid's domain. Kids love it. We all know that. I mean, I get all the statistics. Do adults want video?
5: Oh, I think so. And, you know, kids grow up and are uh, used to doing some of the same things as when they were kids. So we see the video coming over the top as being increasing. Uh, and ultimately, I think in the long run, most all video will be over IP. It,
0: it, it- it'll be over IP, but within the video that, that you're the backbone of, there's got to I, I get the generational shift that the young kids today on YouTube, et cetera, will use video more. Do you see evidence now? That adults want video in journalism it 's a real debate,
5: yes, no, you see the you know <clears throat> video traffic and share substantially increasing. We see the traffic on Akamai you know growing at very substantial rates mm-hmm. and I do think, and you talk to the world 's major broadcasting executives, and I think now they all believe that the large majority of video watching across. You know the the globe will be digital, and that
0: includes and adults, of course. How do you retain employees today? I don't know what the headcount is at Akamai, but you got the young upstarts. And the, they they think they know everything, and you're like, yeah, please come on. How do you retain that that constructive ego of those bright kids today?
5: Well, we work hard to make Akamai be a great place to work. Part of that is having a really innovative culture with teamwork. You know, it's what matters at Akamai is the quality of the idea, not the rank of the person who set it, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and that really is very helpful to grow innovation and you get a lot of innovation from folks coming out of school. Uh, you know that have fresh ways of looking mm-hmm. at things, and that's that's vital for us. Engineering
0: and mathematics is a is, is an area where you love to start projects, and you keep them going way too long. How do you do what Clay Christensen talks about, which is disrupt the failed projects? How do you get rid of failed projects at I- Akamai?
5: It's always hard to yeah. shut something down. Yeah. And you know, we're we're not perfect at it either, but you know, in order to be able to continue to fund innovation or new ideas, you do have to terminate projects that you know, at one point seemed mm-hmm. like they had a lot of promise, but no longer do and that you've invested in and yeah. you say, "Okay, that one didn't work out. You know, uh, innovation is always a high-risk mm-hmm. endeavor, and most ideas are not going to work out, and you do need the discipline to shut them down when, it's, when that becomes w- clear.
0: W- one final question. Did Admiral Rickover come over for dinner? Your father knew Admiral Rickover. This is, an ex- for the, those of you younger, this was an extraordinary and unique individual of yes. our Navy. Did Admiral Rickover come over for dinner?
5: Yes, many times, <coughs> and he was an extraordinary human being.
0: He was wound up like a top. He made the submarines go, didn't he? He did.
5: And, yeah. uh, you know, I had the benefit of growing up in a home where science was really important. My dad worked yeah. very closely with Admiral Rickover. And, uh, you know, yeah. very hardworking uh, Amen.
0: Yeah, this has been great. Thomas Layton of Akamai, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of dot com slash V.R. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.